right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. You don't got time that. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. KU, there was a, a legitimate thought in my mind, and not that it would happen, but at one point, they missed 19 straight going into the end of the half. There was a thought in my mind, like, imagine if we were in a world where KU just didn't make a shot the rest of the season. Someday, Derek. Well, because, like, we had our, our hypothetical a while back of, like, if none of your sports teams could win a game for a full season. <laughs> and for a brief moment in time, I was like, oh, no, are we in this world? And, um, like, could you imagine that? If they missed every shot for the rest of the season and you're just like going in and I started like thinking this through in my head and you just go into your next game and you lose like 80 to nothing and you go into your next game and you're like, are they finally going to make a shot? And then they finally get to like the last game of the season. They hit one shot and they still lose 70 to two, but everybody just goes nuts. Uh, You know, Derek, someday we all get old. Time moves on Mm -hmm. Um, to start off in a little dark. It's a dreary cold day. So let's make things a little dark someday, Derek. You will witness the last made KU shot of your lifetime. Mm. There was a That's moment. Sad. It's it, but did you, you thought maybe that was going to be in the first half of that game last night? And I don't even know who had the last bucket <laughs> before neither. the the run. So it was very. I just know o- Ochai was was hot early, and then everybody was cold after that. You know who I feel really o bad for, for? Freaking twenty. Some better had a bet. He put a hundred dollars on it. For them to go for twenty one? No, no, no. I don't think. I don't know if you can bet on that. Um, maybe you could at like some uh, obscure sport. That book. would be. They'd put if they if KU went the rest of that game without um without making a shot. There would be a sports book that put up the when does KU make their next shot? Like well, how many game minutes? Yeah, before I, KU I makes just mean like like shot. I feel bad for anybody who bet on like the over in the first half or the oh. Kansas team over in the first half, and you're you're sitting there twenty nine to fifteen. You're going okay. This is going to be good. Uh, but there was one person who I guess was the equivalent of like shorting a stock. They basically did the opposite. They were like, I want this to be as ugly as possible. Somebody bet $400 that neither Kansas or Oklahoma State would score 30 in the first half. And well it was, done. It was 29 to 15 with 929 <laughs> to go. And he's sitting there they going, gonna blow you know, it is what it is. I'm not going to lose my bet. This was kind of a ridiculous thing to ask for. And he ends up winning the bet, a $400 bet, to win $27,000. you think he tore up the ticket? Do you think so when it was twenty nine fifteen? I hope not. I, don't I know. really like hope this not. Was a, I hate stories bet. like that for whatever. I, I hate stories like that. Even though, like, <laughs> I enjoy some schadenfreude every mm-hmm. now and then. But stories like that, or, or like the, the videos on YouTube where... You know how like the first three questions on who wants to be a millionaire are stupid easy, yeah. and they just screw up and say the wrong letter. I hate, I hate that. It makes me feel so awful. So stories of guys like, oh, he threw, you know, he tore up his ticket, and then they made a hail mary to to win it. 
I hate stories like no, that. No, I'm pretty sure he cashed it. But like Good for him. Could you imagine if you're sitting there with the ticket and let's say like you were, I don't know, in a Vegas sports book and, and let's say you had like a bunch of money offered on it to where they were gonna try to buy you out of the ticket. And let's say you got to the under four timeout whenever that occurred, around three, whatever, and at that point both teams were still under thirty, and you had you thought you had no chance with nine twenty five or nine thirty five, and you get to the under four timeout and you're like They offer you money back. And they offer you money back. They say they well, they'll double your money. Oh, if they doubled you it, hell take yeah. that at that at twenty nine right? points. As soon as one team, yeah. if they're offering me eight hundred bucks on a four hundred dollar bet, and somebody has twenty nine points, hell yeah. Now here's a question: We got to get to our analysis of yeah. the game itself, but just to continue down this fun hypothetical road, let's say you make a crazy bet like that, or you get this crazy parlay, and something pays off, and Derek, you win thirty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Okay, that's a great amount of money. Would you take ten thousand of it? and buy $10,000 worth of Powerball tickets for tonight? Because <laughs> you'd still have $20,000. Yeah. That's a good question. Do you know your chances of winning the Powerball jackpot tonight, Derek? Uh, one in a billion, I don't know. 50-50. You either get the numbers or you do <laughs> not. It's a yes or no. It's a, okay. You well, either win case, it or you don't. In that case, I'm going to just put my life savings <laughs> on the jackpot tonight. And if you know it goes poorly, if I come in here tomorrow and I look decrepit and... I really had to like sell all my clothes yeah. away and Derek's stuff. Derek's going to be picking why. up a lot more play-by-play yeah, games. That's right. They, I always, what I always love is people like this happened a lot when um, when things were looking particularly bad uh, for the Royals under the David Glass ownership, and of course the David Glass ownership ended as as wonderfully as possible. Two straight pennants, a World Championship. It was amazing, but at some point he was being accused of being too cheap and et cetera, et cetera. And so you always heard, you know, when the when the Powerball jackpot would get up to like five hundred million dollars, you'd you'd find somebody about, man, if I won that, I'd just go put it all on red and try to get it to a billion and buy the Royals. Like people who always thought of buying a sports team like it was buying a pair of slacks. <laughs> you just go to Coles. You just and pick them go up. and grab yeah. it. <laughs> There's just like a Walmart superstore for sports. You just franchises. buy the sports franchise. Just, hey, can I can I ring up the uh, Los Angeles Angels, please? Um, yeah, that would be fantastic. But yeah, KU wins tonight despite that ugly first half. It was a roller coaster of a game. You had the great start to the game. You have the bad finish to the half. Dave was up and down, mostly up by the end of it. You have the end of the game, which you know. Good thing you weren't playing like Press Virginia, which I, I haven't watched any West Virginia this year because they went away from the Press Virginia the last couple of years. I looked at their Ken Palm stats. They forced a lot of turnovers. I wonder if they've gone back to it this year. Could be. I know they um, don't have a heap of size. But it's certainly a good thing that KU wasn't playing a team that presses. Now, obviously, they'll have plenty of time to work on that over the course of the season, and that might have been the first time they really had to work on that. And we've seen other times this year where they've been fine with it. It was just a, like I said, roller coaster of a game, but... I don't think you can bat your eyes if I were to tell you coming into yesterday when we knew Bill Self was 6-8 and eight playing in Stillwater, if you said KU's going to win by 11 on the road. Yeah, if you told me they'd, they'd almost double the spread, I'd take that immediately. Do you think if, if we were to do a, uh, like, I don't know, Bill Self, a idea of games where he loves them, like order up the Bill yeah. Self special. I, I, I that we, would be a Bill Self special. Yeah, Did you so count we, that one. We talk about a lot. Our, our Bill Self it, for uh, now. He's never said this out loud. It's just Derek and I have long held a theory that Bill Self's favorite games are games in which they win, but there is still a lot of criticism he can give his team in the film room, specifically on offense. Yeah, and last night 
I was probably, were you more frustrated at the, even though it was pretty clear toward the end that Kansas was going to win, I was more frustrated um, at the end when they couldn't figure out the press, even though it I it would have taken a miracle like we, like it would have survived on YouTube forever if Oklahoma State came back from 15 down in two and a half or three minutes. So I never thought the Oklahoma State, at that point, I never thought Oklahoma State was going to win. But I was still more annoyed by that than I was at any point during the missed shot. Like the missed shots, I just kept thinking, except for about three, one of which was David McCormick's uh, three-point shot, which came at the end of the shot clock. <laughs> so much confidence which, in that shot, yeah. too. <laughs> but, you know, that that's somewhat excusable because it came at the end of a shot clock. A couple, but w- there were maybe only three or four bad shots during that 0-for-20 stretch. The end of the game, man, even though I knew Kansas was going to win, I was going to throw my television through the window with how they were with that mm-hmm. damn press. It was like they'd never seen it before. No, it was crazy. It's crazy. Um, they played. And you would think with a two-point guard lineup, like you'd be fine. Yeah, I mean, they, they played. What's his name? Um, Mike. Uh, gosh, the old Missouri coach. Um, oh, Saint yeah. Saint John's. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, the guy that UAB he 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 played for Nolan Richardson at, at yeah, Arkansas. Anderson. Mike Anderson, something like that. Anyway, point being, a guy that presses a bunch in in Saint John's. They played them and, and won by 20. They scored 95 points. And for the last two minutes, they were just befuddled. It looked like it was, it looked like Oklahoma State had eight defensive guys out there. Yeah. I I have heard of teams like do a press drill where they do have eight guys out there to make it like, That's, I think KU Self, did that. self does yeah, that. That, okay. was, that was self actually famously in the 04, his first year at KU, they played UAB, also a Mike Anderson coach team. That was a, that was a Friday game. It was a Friday Sweet 16 game, and um, Kansas had um, so they had time to prepare, and they ran basically five on eight drills throughout the week to prep them for that press. So that wasn't great to see, and it leaves you with a little bit of a poor taste in your mouth, as did the end of the first half. But like the end of that first half, it was just you know, I like you said, they weren't like bad shots. Um, the David McCormick mid range one was. Uh, right after he that had missed gross. the three, that was kind of weird. And that but, one's not excusable because the yeah. first one, the three-pointer, there's two seconds left on the shot clock. That was a terrible shot, the, yeah. the second one. So I, uh, but, uh, but like at no point in that was I was like, this is something that I'm worried about because this is just a an unreal run that I don't think we're going to see again. Now, I did at one point view in my head, I was like, good thing this is happening now and not an NCAA tournament game. Um, I know that doesn't completely eliminate the fact that it could happen in an NCAA tournament game but really the story of the game outside of it just being kind of a weird roller coaster type game David McCormick who gets benched for Mitch Lightfoot comes off the bench and, and Mitch actually played well he had six points four rebounds four blocks 15 minutes of play he um went three of five from the field he was efficient now KU was giving up a lot of offensive rebounds when he was on the court so that is important to me- mention but he was, he was solid. He was basically what you needed him to be coming off uh, as the starter. But Dave McCormick was fantastic. 17 points, 15 rebounds. And I said this on Twitter. Like, it, it's very funny to me that, because th- this is just the Dave experience. It's very noticeable, everything he does. And the funniest part about it is that Dave's performance 
was remarkable, and yet there still were a handful of plays where it's just like, how did you not catch that? Or how did you have the ball stripped yeah. away from you? Or how did you miss that? He had the one like where he missed like the two-footer after wrapping under the rim. There's still so many like, what on earth is going on plays? But he was phenomenal overall, and obviously you take those plays if that's the version of David McCormick you're going to get. 17 and 15 for the game. He was unbelievable, and I think credit to him for being able to handle the benching there and and not letting it, I guess, bury him more from whatever the mental side of this is. And I guess now we just have the question of what does this mean for the team moving forward? On Saturday, are you expecting David McCormick to start? No, but and that's because I think if you look at the box score last night, self-made clear Monday, his concern is um, minutes played and who gets more minutes late. And it was, I think, what, 23 to 15? Yes. Dave and it was over. Dave late. Yeah. And so I would say, I would, I would say no. Um, I, but I do wonder is there something he was said? I, I, what was it the act of benching or did self say something to him when he informed him that the benching was coming? Um, that, and, and self is really, really good. You know, we, we all self, you know, we all know the, the the videos of self in the timeouts and his face is going red, and he's got some legendary eruptions um, in his practices. But he's also a master psychologist. He knows exactly what to say and how to say it. And so I think as as good as he is, and and as as known as he as coaches in general are for for their temper tantrums and for yelling, I also think the great ones and Bill Self is great. No when it's calm down time. Mm-hmm. And so I do I do genuinely wonder was he now there were a couple there was one it was a terrible pass that he made last night. Um or maybe lack thereof. Maybe it was a lack of pass. Regardless, he had a moment last night where where self was getting after him during a timeout. But I do wonder what was said. How did self deliver the news of the benching? Uh, he did say I think it's media availability. He told the team, not just Dave McCormick. Um but I, I, I just I wonder as much as the benching, I do wonder if Self said something to him one on one, whether it be angrily or whether it be calmly, um, that that got him to where he was last night. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, because that was such a turnaround from what we've seen, even to the game right before that. It it was remarkable. And for whatever reason, he just gets it going against Big Twelve competition. I I kind of think that I prescribe to the if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of of mold here. And I think it was clear last night. Like I don't think you're losing. I, I listened to the argument that if you start him, that doesn't mean he's going to revert back to what he was. But I also, what are you losing if you if you don't start him? Yeah, that's that's the thing because I there is very much a scenario if you do start him as soon as Saturday, where he plays poorly again on Saturday or maybe even plays poorly for a two-game stretch as a starter or three games or whatever, and then you're back to square one where we were before there was the change, and then you have to get back in the conversation of do we bench him again? Do we bring Mitch Blightfoot in? At that point, do we continue to make it back and forth? Do we make it a permanent thing? It just becomes more of an issue. So I think if you are going to put Dave back in the starting lineup, I think it has to come after more than just one game. I think it has to come after a stretch of three, four games, something like that. But I, I do kind of 
prescribed to that notion of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And like you said, just because Mitch is starting, as, as Bill Self pointed out, doesn't mean he's going to play more minutes. And that, that I think, is okay to, to mention here, too. So if this is what it takes to get Dave going, this is what you got to keep doing. And, and that's maybe a question we'll never have answered. Like, is, is the reason Dave had such a good game because he was motivated? by the benching, or did he just happen to have a good game and it came on the bench? Well, we might never know that, um, but I guess, uh, and we'll play Bill Self's audio for you coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, he did mention, like, he's going to, he hasn't really thought about it, at least last night, whether he'll continue to start Mitch or not, but he's going to ask the team. He's going to ask the team in the same way that they did with with Landon Lucas back exactly. in 2016, and they said, who are we playing best with? Who do you who do you trust most at the five? Uh, do you think this is a good decision? He's going to get their input on this. I don't know which way that leans, but I would think if I was a player, I would just say, hey, it worked last night. Let's just keep doing it. Yeah, that sounds right. And I, I you know, I but and I think it's smart of him. I mean, for think about this for the fact that. And this is kind of a, a you know chicken or egg thing. I think if he was a less successful coach and we found out he was doing that, we'd be saying, oh, my gosh, he's trusting his players too much. He doesn't want to make a decision. But I think now because he's clearly solidified, solidified himself as one of the best coaches ever, um, arguably the best coach in the history of this program, he, you know, now we can sit back and say, wow, you know, he's – He's achieved all of this, and yet he's still willing to um, go to his players for advice, mm-hmm. and, and that I think that's the pretty cool. I and and I think you know I just and, and probably a big reason why he's so successful. Yeah, and so I was I was surprised last night that we didn't see any of Clemens and Adams and K really didn't dig into the bench even when they were having their struggles shooting. I thought that might have been an opportunity to do so. Jalen Coleman lands did. You hit a couple big threes off the bench in the second half. Obviously, what Dave did was off the bench, but I, I don't totally view him as when I say like the bench deep into the rotation. Um, so that was kind of interesting. But for KU to reach their maximum level, as we've talked about here, David McCormick has to play well. He doesn't necessarily have to be Big Twelve Player of the Year, but he Which has he, to be that. He played all, at that level last he did. night. He did. He has to be at least like a you know all Big Twelve level player. Whether you know it doesn't have to be first team or anything, but he has to be good enough that he is one of your better players. Because if you're going to continue to throw him the ball, if you're going to continue to play through a big when he is on the court, he has to be one of your better players, and he does things other guys on the team can't. And last night, we saw that guy. We'll talk more about that with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. With Adam Dravet, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, depending on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening in on KLWN and klwn.com. With Adam Dravetta, I am Derek Johnson. KU takes down Oklahoma State last night, 74-63. to We're joined now by Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star and KansasCity.com. Uh, so, Jesse, we will have your Kiss, Mary Kill coming up um, later, but I have a, uh, a KU basketball version of Kiss, Mary Kill, but it's with KU basketball problems. I don't know how you want to take this, if you would marry the smallest problem or if you would marry the biggest problem. I'll let you decide how you want to adjust that. But here are the three KU problems that you have to sort out here. 
Remy Martin not searching for his shot enough. That's the first one. The second one is David McCormick trying to get going like we saw last night. And the third one is Jalen Wilson being bad at offense. Uh, Do what you will with those three different, I guess, issues for KU. Mm, Okay, I guess I'm trying to figure out a way to phrase this. Um, So I'm guessing the kill is one that I don't buy as a real thing. Okay. Um, So I guess I will kill... uh, You know, I'll kill David McCormick getting going. Um, I, I feel like we've talked about this a lot, and... Uh, I, I've, I've said it, you know, Dave provides a lot of stuff for Kansas that is, you, you have to look a little harder for, but is still there. And what he frustrates with is the very obvious stuff, which is, you know, when he's going bad, he's not catching the ball with two hands. He's not rebounding with two hands. He's not scoring when he's right by the basket. But listen, when it comes to steals and blocks and offensive rebounds, and getting to the free throw line. Um, there's some really, really good things that Abe McCormick does. And not only that, post-defense, which uh, KU's defense has been much better when he's in there if you look at um, the advanced numbers. Um, I, I, I think that that – I think it was a smart thing for Bill Stuff to do to kind of push his buttons to get him going. I think it's pretty obvious the ceiling is highest when he's in there, and he has to play well for Kansas to play well. And I, I think that even though he frustrates sometimes um, that – he maybe is not the issue that it is sometimes made out to be. So, so, so to I, be clear, you're killing the the issue as as far as that being an issue. You think that I'm is the killing, least concerning? I'm killing the narrative. Yes. Okay. So I guess. Um, so let's see. I'm I'm gonna marry one narrative and kiss one. So one will be temporary narrative and one will be married. Uh, I guess I will kiss the Remy Martin narrative because um, it's so crazy. Uh, I think it's a really good one to kiss, actually, because Remy could do anything next game, and it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> um, the Emporia State game, he was benched basically for not being a team first player and then got into the game and jacked up like the first nine shots So when he saw them. And then from there, he basically, um, the message to him was like, hey, you need to pass more, be less, uh, less selfish. And since then, he's like, oh, really? Okay, cool. I'm going to pass all the time. Like, when I have a wide-open layup, I'm going to pass then, too. So <laughs> I, I think Remy will get it. I think he'll find that happy medium. And listen, KU's played really well with him on the court. So it's, this is not a major issue. And I think overall, he has unselfish thoughts and has kind of put himself in the background to make the team better. And, and Christian Brown and Ojai Abad, you're on their way to all Big 12 first team status because of that. So I, I think all in all, Remy's playing in a Playing well, doing well for Kansas. Um, yeah, they could use him shooting open layups, though. That would help the team out. So I, I think he'll get that figured out eventually. Uh, I guess I'll marry the narrative of Jalen Wilson. I mean, I'm, I'm concerned, uh, Derek. I These numbers are bad. Uh, you know, 2 of 23 from three-point range, uh, 39% from the free throw line. He's missing chippies now, too. I mean, he rebounded the ball great, and uh, you can't take that away from him, but you just can't be a complete zero shooting the ball. Uh, and that's a concern right now. And, and it's a concern because the confidence you would think has to be a concern. And that's reflected in 39% free throw shooting. And that's reflected in what do you do when you have a wide open three and KU right now doesn't have the luxury of most lineups putting four 
great offensive players around Jalen Wilson because most likely Juwan Harris is going to be in the game. And so they think I think they really change offensively when they have four guys who can score on the floor instead of three guys who can score on the floor. But when they have three, it kind of becomes a little bit of an issue. So I'm 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 worried about Jalen Wilson. I think that alert is on high, and those shooting numbers do scare me because I'm not sure. I mean, he'll bounce back a little bit at least, but uh, when you start at 9% from three, you really have to bounce back a big way to justify taking as many shots as he has. Okay, so the ones that um, you felt like were, were more positive about where they could go from here were the Dave ones and the Remy ones. If I were to tell you that you could choose between one of the two, Remy Martin being able to you know, be more aggressive with his, his shot selection and hitting shots or Dave playing like he did last night. Which of those two do you think has a bigger impact on KU trying to be a Final Four national championship level team? Oh, I think Dave's the storyline of the year. Uh, and I wrote about this a couple weeks ago, but, you know, Bill Self, with the new transfer portal rules, he really went out there and kind of got backups to his backups and plan B's and plan C's. And you look at all these positions like, you know, Joseph yes, scored a ton of points last year and he's basically not playing. But if Remy goes down, like he was injured that one game, Hey, you've got a backup point guard, a guy who's really fast and can handle the ball. And that's nice to have. And, um, you know, same thing, you kind of go down the roster and, and there's backups to the backups. Like, Jalen Coleman lands was Ochai Abaji insurance in case Ochai Abaji didn't come back. Well, Ochai Abaji did come back. So if he's not shooting well from three one night, you've got, you know, 60% of Ochai Abaji and Jalen Coleman lands and maybe a little bit more than that on the offensive end because he's shown the ability to hit some really difficult shots in there and come through when Katie really needs him. The one spot they don't have that is a true five-man big body who can guard one-on-one in the post. And, um, you know, provide some rim protection there. They, they don't have anybody besides Dave. And I think you see it in the numbers. Their defense has been better with Dave on the court, and it's not close. So uh, Dave, Dave, to me, is like the biggest story of the season. Uh, if they get him going, then they are Final Four good. They have that ceiling that could take them all the way to the end of the season. But if he's not there, you know, Bill Self didn't go out in the free agent market and pull in a guy who's like Dave or who can rim protect or who can – be uh, that sort of presence in the lane that he's been so far. So, yeah, I, I, I think that there's a lot on his shoulders, and he's sort of played like it early in the year. You know, he's put a lot of pressure on himself, and sometimes that's for things that I don't think are that important, which is him scoring the ball and making all these post moves. I, I think they just need him in there. They need him in there, and he's consistent, and then obviously it helps when he rebounds like he did last night because that gives a whole different dimension and also gives the appearance of him playing well, which gives him more minutes and gives him more confidence with Coach Bill Self. We know that's as important as anything as well. The the fact that they didn't get uh, among the the quote unquote free agents that they got in the transfer portal that they didn't get a, a, a another you know big five man is it just there was kind of a combination of how well Dave was down the stretch combined with how much scoring they needed and also combined with the fact that they weren't sure Ochai was even coming back was there something that was missed or was it just a combination of things and you can't you know, they just kind of had so many needs that they, they couldn't possibly fill all of them, assuming if they didn't think Ochai was coming back. Well, I mean, at some point, it's diminishing returns, right? I mean, this already is like the deepest roster he's already had. And you also have to, like, look a kid in the eye and be like, hey, you have a legitimate chance for playing time. But you saw last night, I mean, Kansas brought in, what was Zach Clements, the top 40, top 50 
uh, player nationally as a freshman. And then they brought in K.J. Adams, who's top 100. Both those guys play the five spot. Both those guys combined for zero minutes yesterday. And so if you're a transfer big man and you're looking at this lineup, and you're going, well, okay, you got a six-year senior in Mitch Lightfoot. You've got Dave McCormick, who's coming off a monster second half of the Big 12 campaign. Um, and has done you know great things over that time, whatever we averaged sixteen and eight or, or whatever it was. Um, I mean, you know, Bill Self can or assistant coaches can say whatever they want to to you, but like you're gonna look at them in the eye and say, well, where's my playing time coming from? Like, what, where is the path to that? And, and again, for a while, if you're Joseph Yesifu, the path to that was hey, you didn't have Remy Martin yet, you know? If you are Jalen Coleman-Lanz, the path to that is, oh, which I bought, he might not come back. But the path to telling a, a big guy center like Dave, who maybe could rim protect, you know, to come into Kansas and play a bunch of minutes, um, that just might not be as clear of a path. And listen, I mean, what are the odds that um, Dave was going to regress like this through the first semester? Did, did anybody expect that before the year began? I mean, I know I didn't. And I was, um, frankly, I was one of the guys early last year that thought they should have moved on from Dave because of his offensive numbers being so bad early in the year and him taking on a huge usage rate, not being an efficient player. He obviously um, overcame that in the second half and was a much, much better and more productive player. But, um, yeah, I think his struggles early were unexpected, but at, at some point in time, it, it just kind of becomes lying, if you will, to try to get a player that is sort of like Dave McCormick to come on the roster as the whatever, 14th, 15th player, and to say, hey, yeah, you're going to play for Kansas next year when it's pretty clear that you're not going to unless something goes very drastically wrong. So, um, yeah, I mean, KU has a luxury of, of riches, and I'm, I'm sure some guys are upset and some guys are going to wait for their playing time and, and some guys will be fine, but um, there are humans. There's a human element to this as well, and, and to try to just bring in a big man to pad your roster with a 15th player when he wasn't probably going to play much anyway, uh, it's probably wishful thinking, even though you know Bill Self was able to pull that off in a lot of other positions, which has made KU deeper than many other seasons out there. Uh, circling back to Jalen Wilson and something you brought up with, you know, Zach Clements, KJ Adams just not getting playing time. I guess at what point, uh, because I, I feel like all the frustrations have been given to Dave, which is, is funny, like you said, um, even with some of the, the struggles and, and I think very noticeable things when he does struggle uh, that Dave has had, like uh, throughout uh, the, the statistic nature of it, or if you're looking at like O rating or how they do on the court, like KU – has just been better with Dave than they have Jalen, yet there hasn't really been that talk about Jalen getting less minutes, and there still was the talk about playing Jalen at the five, which I haven't really uh, talked about much because of the fact that he just hasn't been playing well, and on top of that, I don't think Bill Self's really going to do it, so I haven't really been spending time talking about something that I don't think is going to happen. Um, but at what point do you think one of those guys would start eating into Jalen's minutes and instead of us having a conversation of should Dave start or Mitch start, this turns into how much should Jalen play? Should he start to lose minutes to other guys? Because, like, for instance, like, I look at his O rating. It is the worst on the team. Like, that includes walk-ons. It has just been a rough go of it. That doesn't mean it'll continue that way. But at some point, you know, there's got to be a foothold that's lost a little bit in the rotation, I would imagine. Well, I think two things with that. Um, number one, you have to have somebody take his minutes. And I guess the question would be, who would that player be? And I think the most natural person you would say would be Jalen Coleman-Lands, because obviously Kansas right now is playing on Harris to get a lot of minutes. So to put another point guard type out there with them, to give them three point guards on the full same time, 
it's going to be pretty difficult. So that's we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where Joseph Yesifu, where I like his game, I like but when they already are playing these two point guard types a ton of minutes, you, you, it's really hard to play three of them. Like, you're really small then. So um, I, I guess who takes his minutes? You could say Jalen Coleman lands, but um, I got to be frank with you guys. I mean, Jalen has filled it up and he's helped save them the last two games, but. The patient parting. I mean, it is rough when he is on the court uh, defensively, and and the numbers reflect that. And he helps them score a lot of points, and he helps them give up a lot of points too. So maybe KJ Adams, you put him at the four, but it seemed like KJ mostly played him at the five this year, kind of a small ball position five man. So I, I don't really know who the natural player is to get that additional playing time, and and part of this is the science you're talking about, Derek, which is like we can all look at these numbers and say, hey, not productive. Last year, I'm like, hey, he's not being productive. They can't afford to have this moving forward. But part of it, look, Jalen Wilson's been with the program this number of years. I've seen this in practice. I've known he, he did this last year. I saw him shoot this way. What can you project for him moving forward? And if you move away with that, what potentially could you lose because you pulled the plug too quickly? And, um, you know, the rebounds are important. You know, he had 15 yesterday, and that was a, a big number. Uh, I believe 15, uh, I think he matched uh, David in that regard. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a big thing for him. But uh, we, we already mentioned it. I mean, the offensive numbers like this, or he's going to become like a DeWan Harris type player where you just got to have to work around him. And then that's, can be very difficult. You can't have a guy in there who only defends a rebound. I mean, that's very difficult to to work around. So I don't know the perfect solution there, but my guess would be that Bill Self has enough faith in what he's seen from Jalen Wilson that he figures over time you give him a bigger sample that some of those numbers are going to turn around. Yeah, I, I and I don't mean to just like kind of, you know, I, I just wonder if his only way of being effective is playing that small ball five. And, and I feel like I, I wonder if we're holding on too much to the first, you know, two months or whatever we saw of him, because as I look at the last seven games of last season, he went six of twenty-five from three, which is not a good number either. And you combine it with this year, so I, I don't know. I think he could still be a really good player. I just, I'm kind of to a point where I just wonder if that's not in the cards this year with the fit, and and he's going to be more so a guy who could be like a star next year, but. Who knows what it'll be this year? Okay, we're talking with Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star, KansasCity.com. Um, your real kiss, Mary kill. Last week, you kissed Xavier, you married Texas Tech, and you killed Texas, I believe. Uh, I might be off with the, the kiss one. But um, this week, we got Ohio State, Alabama, and LSU. Well, I'll marry LSU. Um, they've been good, and they're one of the rare teams that have a really shiny record that the advanced numbers actually like. So um, I think they're off to a great start, and obviously their coach makes some headlines um, for, for some of the wrong reasons, but uh, they've been playing really well and should be you know, one of those teams way up there in the SEC along with uh, teams like Kentucky and Auburn who have been playing well too lately. Uh, I guess I will, you know, I'll actually kill Alabama. You know, I, I they're one of those kind of flash teams. Oh, look at the wins they got, but they've been so inconsistent. So um, it, it feels like one of those teams that you go against the tournament, you go, wow, man, their ceiling's really high. But then you just wonder about kind of the the normal level of them. Are, are they going to get knocked off a little bit earlier just because they've had really really good wins and, and sort of bad games in there as well? Uh, and I guess that leaves me uh, kissing Ohio State. Yeah. Well, whatever. They're good. They're, they're a good, solid Big Ten team, and um, I'm, I'm sure they'll uh, 
they'll be one of those teams in there at the end. The end of the tournament, like, oh, Ohio State, they got their four seed, uh, just like most years they do. <laughs> that was the most un- unenthusiastic kiss that you have ever given on this show. Um, all right, uh, before we let you go, Jesse, one last thing with Adam. All right, Jesse, one last thing. If an NFL offensive lineman was 10 feet in front of you in a three-point stance, would you be able to notice when his ass moves? Um, There's a reason reason behind this question I want you to know. So I'm thinking that if and only if this offensive lineman was wearing number 79 and Uh played for the Cincinnati Bengals and flinched before a very crucial play in a very crucial game, I think then, and I was an NFL official, even if I was kind of a substitute one, then and only then I would realize if his butt moved up in the air before one of the biggest plays of the season. Um, (laughs) Maybe not otherwise, otherwise, but if it was those specific, that specific scenario – uh, then I probably would be able to see uh, his butt flinch. Well, I don't know how on earth you came up with that that scenario. That's an awfully specific one. I'm interested in how you, you came up with such a specific scenario, but great answer. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, like I said, uh, that's the first thing that came to mind, just right off the top of my head. All right, that's Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star. Very imaginative mind. That would be weird if that happened in real life. Uh, You can check out all his work in the Kansas City Star and at KansasCity.com. Jesse, thank you so much as always, man. All right. All right, that's Jesse Newell. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN KLWN.com, the KLWN app, depending on it. Four o'clock hour, you're listening to RCST. I'm Derek Johnson. Along with me is Adam Dravetta. And it is a Wednesday at four o'clock, which means it's time to get to Around the World with Adam. All right, let's uh, let's have some fun. We're going to start off with the story that you sent me, Derek. So there's not even going to be oh. any uh, anticipation or excitement of uh, does, Air, or does Derek know the answer to this or not. So I'm just going to tell you the story. This is from the New York Post. Uh, out of Las Vegas, an accused Las Vegas murderer uh, nabbed uh, was was arrested, and in the back of his truck, I'm just gonna I know you know the answer, so I'm just gonna leave it out there for suspense. In the back of the truck was a severed head, mm. a human severed head. Eric Holland, Didn't age, pick that up at Home Depot. <laughs> Eric Holland, uh, age 57, allegedly stole a Chevrolet Avalanche, not realizing that body parts inside coolers were stashed inside when cops pulled him over on December 23rd. That's according to David Westbrook, who is Mr. Holland's defense attorney. Ahead, Derek. Well, the first thing we need to get to here is, do we believe him? Because he he stole a, a car, or so he claims. Like, what if this is him being like, oh, no, I got caught. What if I just, like, the, the car might not have been his to begin with, but he might have done it. You yeah. know what I mean? And then he's just like, well, I stole the car. It was just like this when I got yeah, there. Yeah, that's the question. Was the question The question would be then, did you steal the car? Because the cops would know. Like, it'd be easy to look. Like, no, of course you didn't steal it. Your name is on the registration. So if they can, if they, if, if you can, if you can make it clear that the vehicle was stolen, then the question becomes, did you steal the car and then put the head in it? Or did the head come already with the car? 
That's a good question. Um, so I, I don't know if we believe this guy or not, but let's say he did steal it. I, I do feel bad for him if that is the case because it's just like, you know, you're you're uh, doing a crime, but you're not doing like a deadly cl- crime. And then now you feel like, oh, no, I'm going to get framed. I'm going to go to jail for way longer than I would have. Worth noting, the head belonged to a man named Richard Miller, who's the victim of a uh, homicide and Holland, the guy with the head in the truck, knew Richard Miller. Okay. Was an acquaintance of Miller, according to uh, station KVVU. See, that makes it a little more suspicious. There's no chance he. That's that's his head. Well, no, it's and Richard. Why, it's Richard's head. It just unless he knew that head was in there. Unless it was Richard's truck, whose head it was, was like in deep with like the mob or something. He owed a bunch of people money, so this guy was like, "Hey, you owe me money. I'm stealing your car." Somebody else was like, you owe me money. I'm taking your head off. But why would it be Ooh. in the car? I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot to. Uh, there's a. There's a lot to. Like, to, why would if you cut off his head, put it in his own car? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I got to think he knew. At the very least, he knew that head was in there. Imagine the cops, though. Oh, man. Routine traffic stop. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Car's stolen. All right. We need to search your car. Whoa. Whoa. Um, all right, we're going to move on. This is from the UPI, a story out of uh, Cyprus. I cannot possibly pronounce the name of the town, so we're just going to say that the the, the, the country is uh, Cyprus. Um, the, uh, the This is sad. We've had a lot of sculptures be vandalized on this segment. We've had a lot of sculptures be stolen on this segment. This is another instance of vandalism. At about 3.30 in the a.m. on New Year's Day, so about three and a half hours into the new year in uh, this town in Cyprus, $5,400 in damages were caused uh, due to vandalism on a six-foot, 16-foot-tall sculpture of what? Statue of Liberty. I don't know. Great big potato. So it's just a... It, oval? If if well, if you look at it, it, actually looks more like a corn dog. I'm showing Derek. Uh, yeah, that, it does look. Uh, yeah, I see a potato. Yeah, you can see both. Um, but yes, it, it's very much. It's more potatoey than corn doggy. But uh, nonetheless, this, some idiot decided, hey, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna vandalize this thing. Can you uh, can you tell me the nickname of the big potato? Mm, well, don't I don't think I don't too know, hard. What language do people in Cyprus? Speak? I don't know. Where but, is Cyprus? I don't know, but don't think mm. too hard. I think it's in southwestern Asia. The Big Potato. Yep. Ah. Nicknamed the Big Potato. The monument was erected (laughs) in its town in October to not honor the nation's staple crop. So apparently Cyprus and Idaho have quite a bit in common. Maybe Cyprus is in Idaho. I have no idea where it is. That's a distinct possibility. I only know of Boise, so you could be right. There's a Cyprus in California, which is nearby Idaho. It all adds up. It immediately went viral on Twitter as tourists lined up to take pictures behind the, beside the sculpture. But hours after ringing in the new year, unknown perpetrators vandalized the attraction. You can't trust anybody with a giant potato, man. No, you can't. Apparently, this is a, an island in the Middle East. It's uh, that's what I said, Southwest Asia. Okay, yeah, by like Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Egypt. It's in that little. Uh, Former Cyprus ambassador oh. to Britain, Euripides—well, uh, his first name's Euripides. I can't pronounce his last name. That's a sweet first name. Compared the other national, compared it to the other national beacons, such as the Eiffel Tower and Statue of Liberty. Sit tight. It's a 16-foot-high potato. It's not on par. Certainly not with the Eiffel Tower. Like 
I don't know. I you couldn't can't even eat tell you. Eiffel Tower. You can eat potatoes. You can't eat this potato though. <laughs> and this was. And look, this is only in the the town, at, the village where the potato is. Ten thousand people. Paris is one of the most recognizable skylines on the planet. No one's gonna. It's ten thousand people. But see, we didn't even know about this potato being there. This is actually really genius if you think about you th- it. Oh my gosh! Do you think it was like the mayor? I think it was. I think this is a tour thing, a tourist thing. It's like, hey, not enough people know we have this. They need to find out. And if we just like send out a, an email to people and be like, hey, come see our big potato, nobody's gonna care. If we have a story come out that says, oh no, the potato's stolen, and then there's going to be another story that says the potato returned, people are going to be like, oh, there's intrigue. I want to see this potato. What's up with this? Why is there controversy? Why are people stealing it? Why are people bringing it back? This is actually genius. I think they, I think you may be dead on right. Um, we're going to move on uh, to a January 3rd story, also courtesy of the UPI. We're moving on to Australia, uh, specifically Christmas Island, Australia. If you've ever listened to this segment before, or if you follow me on Twitter, at Adrovetta, you will know that Australia absolutely terrifies the bejesus out of me. It is the place where all of the monsters in the mist came from. It is an absolute island of horrors. It is terrifying. And we're going to further that by telling you, this is during a golf tournament, what snapped a man's golf club in half? Snapped it dead in half, Derek. Uh... I don't know, a T-Rex back to life in a, Australia. A crab. How big is the crab? A big-ass crab snapped the golf club. and It's a thing called a coconut crab, which I've, I'm estimating is roughly, I don't know, 72,000 pounds, Holy 800 cow. feet wide. These things are gigantic. It's not that big, but they're enormous. No, these you really can Google are. some of them. They're as big as trash cans. It says it can grow up to one meter in width. From the tip of one leg to another, one meter—that's a full yard. Yeah. Of how big this this crab thing can be, it looks like, and it, the way it looks, it looks like if it was like a, a giant spider, because of how like big the the front claws are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Located, they look like the big teeth of the spider. That thing is terrifying. Yeah, they're ter- Everything on Australia is terrifying. <laughs> you know, they have bats the size of dogs there. No, they have like killer ants too. I mean, they have every, everything, everything that can me, kill you. Wh- it's yeah. where the uh, monsters from yeah. the mist came no, from. No, you could be like, hey, there's there's a, a killer puppy. It's in Australia. There's there's a killer uh, anything. A ladybug. It's probably in Australia, yeah, it, right? It, like, it has it shoots poison from its eyes. Right. <laughs> Don't let it touch you. Oh yeah, that lived that, that's in Australia. Not a, <laughs> no doubt about it. You could tell me any terrifying thing exists there, mm-hmm. and I'd be like, oh yeah, it's probably in Australia. If if you have an evil twin, he lives in Australia. I do have an evil twin. Does he live in Australia? I don't know, but his name uh, is Batum. We try to keep mm, tabs on him, that but could he's be Australian. very he's very elusive. Uh, apparently, Friday golf is a religion on the island, um, but it, it interrupted their religion. Um, so this coconut crab. How did snapped, he get the golf club? I don't know. Uh, I'll say this: it's also known as a robber crab because Ooh. it apparently has a penchant for so I wonder thievery. If it went up to the golf cart and grabbed it out but could you imagine if the, this guy saw the crab and he's what like if i gotta defend like, myself he tried if, to hit the crab the crab was so strong it grabbed the golf club from him and smacked him yeah what if it was like two or three of these things standing on each other in a trench coat acting mm. like a person and he didn't know it was a crab until they get, took oh the i'm going coat. to play my human <laughs> golf i <laughs> gotcha he's like wait greg you were in my wedding yeah what's the next story uh the next story uh we're gonna move on to a very Polite woman, 
Uh, uh, a woman very um, very considerate of others. This is from uh, Sky News. Uh, this woman, uh, I, I don't want to upset anybody by trying to pronounce her last name. I would not be able to. First name, uh, Marissa. She was on a transatlantic flight when she developed a sore throat. And while on the plane, she took a rapid COVID test, scarily turning out to be positive. Oh, no. She was already on the flight. This woman uh, is a school teacher in Michigan. She was traveling from Chicago to Reykjavik, Iceland um, on the 20th of December. Felt her throat hurting, took the rapid test, came back positive. She was very scared, obviously. Uh, but you know what she did? She stayed in the bathroom the entire damn flight. Because the flight had already happened. Yeah. It already started. You're already in the air. Wait, so when did she find out exactly? Like On the she- flight. Because she was on the flight when she felt, according to this, she felt her sore throat come on during the flight. Oh, so she didn't officially find. She didn't like get a call. That's how I I envisioned. No, she she took a sitting down. She she got a a call. Like you're positive. Um, So she just feeling bad and went in the bathroom. She was yeah. She was she took a a rapid COVID test that she was carrying with her, and within quote what felt like two seconds, there were two lines, which apparently means positive. Mm. Um. The woman decided to protect the other 150 passengers and crew on the Iceland Air flight. She would lock herself away in the toilets for the remainder of the journey. Those things are dinky, man. Yeah, that stinks. Um, not, well, I guess literally. Um, but did it work? Because uh, that's a good question. I mean, you got to go back when the thing lands, right? It's still the same right? air circulation, and it's still like you still had to walk through the plane and like... You might have touched things. Described it as a uh, okay. I, I'm I'm getting I'm liking this less and less because apparently she documented the whole experience on TikTok. I don't like when people do things uh, for the sake of attention. Um, that's annoying. She even tweeted, "Shout out to at Iceland Air for my VIP quarantine quarters." So, eh, I'm liking this less and less. Mm. Uh, speaking to NBC News is Steve Patterson. She described it as a quote crazy experience. Quote, I just took my rapid test and I brought it in the bathroom and within what felt like two seconds, there were two lines. Um, she said the self-isolation was made bear- bearable because of the care of flight attendant Rocky. Uh, so do you think eventually like, I think people they must were have like, who's she must, in the bathroom? She must have told him, hey, I'm going to hang out in the john the whole time well, yeah, because I got this to, COVID test. Because otherwise there would have been people constantly coming up knocking like, hey, is somebody in there? The uh, flight attendants would have asked. The like, flight attendant on? said, she's, uh, Marissa says of the flight attendant, quote, she made sure I had everything I needed for the next five hours from food to drinks and constantly checked in on me, assuring me I would be all right. So it, it appears she was in... Uh, she was in contact with the flight crew. Apparently, uh, she um, she had to quarantine in the hi- in the hotel, but that flight attendant uh, got her flowers and a little Christmas tree so she could put it oh, up in her hotel story. while she was this, um, quarantining. I don't think this is uh, flight safe. You're not supposed to be in the bathroom at takeoff or on landing. I, I wonder if she took it after that. The landing part. I I get the feeling she she uh, took the test after takeoff. My question is the landing. You you cannot be in the bathroom during landing. That's a pretty big rule. Now, I don't know if they made an exception for her or what. We're going to move on now to another bathroom travel story. Mm. John Madden, we've talked a lot about that. Uh, only three people. He was very well known. He hated flying. He would have never used an, airport, an airplane bathroom because he never flew. Allegedly, as the story goes, he flew from Tampa to Houston one time. And then never flew again. He never wanted to. So he had his incredible bus. I think at one point he got Outback Steakhouse to yes, sponsor it. 
It was beautiful on the inside. It was amazing. Um, transitioned into broadcasting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The Madden Cruiser became an essential part. Of, oh, this is by uh, courtesy of the SB Nation, by the way. Uh, part of Matt Madden's mythologies, he drove from game to game. Apparently, he had certain rules. And only three people ever, ever have allowed to relieve themselves of the number two variety on the bathroom in his bus. And one of them, one was a Fox producer, Richie Zions, um, a gentleman called, um, uh, let's see, uh, Oh, Mil- uh, last name Millen, who's the guy who traveled a lot with him. Uh, and the great one, Wayne Gretzky. Ah, yeah. Apparently, when you're the greatest hockey player ever, you can take a dump on John Madden's bus. Mm. Isn't that awesome? That is. Wait, so John Madden never did? I'm guessing I'm guessing this. Is, he was just listing guests that were allowed to. Okay. So, yeah. it's uh, he, had, he had three rules to be on his bus. The rules were, number one, be on time. Number two, pay attention. And number three, play like hell when I tell you to. And he had a lesson, lesser, those are rules for players. Uh, a lesser known rule for his bus passengers, quote, nobody takes a dump. <laughs> he was very, very, he was very clear about that. So, um. You can take a dump there, you can take a dump there, but can't take a dump right can't there. Dump, can't take the, a dump on this bus. I love yeah, that. he probably used a little telestrator. Yeah, yeah to show Here, him. here, right at the quick trip. Here, <laughs> here, that. here. But not in this bathroom. So, very important. Uh, but Wayne Gretzky, mm. the greatest hockey player ever. That's his best accomplishment, Oh, by honestly. far. Firing one out in the Madden Cruiser? Hell yeah. All right, that is Around the World with Adam. Real quick, I did want to bring this up. I wasn't sure if it was in there. A woman was forced to quarantine in Australia with her Tinder date after both contracted COVID. So their first date turned into a week with each other. Oh, wow. I wonder if they're How'd either going to get married or it's going to go horribly. And it was Australia, so her it. Tinder date was a 13-foot-long spider. Yeah, it was. No, it was the three crabs in a trench coat. Could have been. All right, that's Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Shark Sports Stock on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Chief Stock, next. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Shark Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. So Teddy Bridgewater is officially out on Sunday. Not a huge surprise. He got carted off for really bad concussion that he suffered against Cincinnati. It was a really scary moment. He wasn't moving. Um, so Drew Locke is officially the starter on Saturday's game against the Chiefs. And that... Uh, I think it has to make you feel pretty good because Drew Locke is hmm, not good. It's, well, and it's it, against the Chiefs in particular. I mean, he he's been like he, the 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 haze that I think uh, was over the Derek Carr against the Chiefs early on in his career. I think has moved on to to Drew Locke. Difference is Drew Locke has it against basically every other team, not just the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, I mean, this is crazy because Drew Locke was a second-round draft pick, so you would think, okay, at worst, you know, maybe he'll be a journeyman backup in the NFL. You could make a case that he is not even a good backup because, I mean, I would probably say that. In his 23 career games, 20 starts, I guess that's a very small sample, he's completing under 60% of his passes, which in today's NFL with 
the way that the game has opened up for quarterbacks and, and with all the easy completions you have with screen passes and little flips forward and stuff, that's very bad. Um, 25 touchdowns to 20 interceptions in his career, including last year when he led the NFL in interceptions despite only starting 13 games. And he is uh, at 6.1 yards per attempt. He, That's so bad. Yes, is not good. Now, he played okay at the Chargers. He was 18 of 25, 245 yards, a touchdown. Um, they lost 34-13, so I'd imagine there was a good amount of that in garbage time. Uh, the game before that, not good either. He's just not very good. And, you know, if, if Teddy Bridgewater started this game on Saturday, it's not that I would be like, oh, no, the Chiefs are going to lose now. But you would at least feel like, okay, it's it's you're playing a divisional opponent on the road. They have a good defense. Like, maybe there is a world where the Chiefs could get upset here. I what, what don't the, feel that way with Drew Locke. What the Broncos score? Wasn't the Broncos game where it was the? I think they scored nine. I think it was twenty-two and, to nine. And I think one of the. I think that was the game where one of the Chiefs' touchdowns came on Mike Hughes picking up the fumble. It was wasn't that that game or was I that the Raiders? No, that was the Raiders game. I'm thinking about. It was a Daniel Sorensen pick six. Okay, okay. So I knew they had. I knew they had a, a defensive score on a pass that I'm pretty sure the, got deflected at the line. The Raiders game Neiman. and Arrowhead was the one with the Mike Hughes. Yeah. So down. Ben Neiman and Daniel Sorensen were the ones that had that big play. That's right. Yeah. That was the big. That was the big vindication game for those two because the, the tip from Neiman went right into the arms of uh, of Daniel Sorensen. Yes. So Drew Lock not good. That makes me feel even better about the Chiefs. I already saw. They were like a nine-and-a-half-point favorite. I'm, I'm sure it'll be around there, around 10 points or something uh, by the time that one kicks off. Um, I think one thing that, I don't know, we didn't really talk about yet from the Chiefs game with the Bengals because it was a loss and there were so many things that were mishandled or uh, kind of went against you that that was kind of the storyline. How about the job that Joe Tooney did? I mean, you're talking about a guy who you signed, gave big money to play left guard, and... And Orlando Brown, last minute in pregame warmups, is out with calf injury. Now, it sounds like he should be ready to go for this week. And then your backup left tackle, Lucas Niang, who's really your backup at both sides, gets hurt in that game. So now, because at this point in the NFL, you can't dress any, everybody that you have on your active roster. So maybe your normal guy, I don't know who the start at left tackle this week. It could still be Joe Tooney. I would think maybe like Kyle Long or something like that gets that spot because he wasn't active, but he is on the roster, probably gets elevated and and becomes active at that spot. Um, but basically, you had to move him over to left tackle. You kind of had a, a work or, or a makeshift offensive line, and there was a moment when that happened when it was like, oh, no, here we go again. We saw this last year at the yeah, end of the, the season. Super Bowl. Yeah, you, you have all these offensive line injuries. You're, you're down to second, third string guys. You're playing guys out of position, and we saw the result of that. And I wonder if that would be the case. And you had on Cincinnati, Trey Hendrickson, a guy who has 14 sacks, was going up against Joe Tooney at left tackle. And he, he did a great job at left tackle. And this isn't just Joe Tooney. It's the offensive line as a whole. Um, I mean, you still had Creed Humphrey and Trey Smith in the middle there. Joe Tooney's still getting paid a lot of money, so you expect him to play well. But the fact that they were able to weather that storm, I, I think, very well, and you don't have any sacks, I don't believe. There were some QB pressures that affected it. Um, that, I think, speaks very uh, very well upon the depth that they have created at the offensive line. And as this thing goes on, obviously, there's a tipping point for everything, right? If, if Creed Humphrey got hurt, then all of a sudden you're you're in, in peril again. But that was a really good performance, I thought, from the offensive line. Yeah. Excuse me, and I think a lot of that, uh, a lot of that uh, 
credit, yes, goes to the first and foremost credit always goes to the players uh, in any at any level, I think. But I think a lot of credit needs to go to Brett Veach, um, who acquired this who, this talent because I, I think they looked at it and they said, um, not only do we need to improve our offensive line, we need to improve the guys behind our offensive line. Now, what happened in, in the Super Bowl was a really drastic example um, but I think they saw. Look, what do what are we going to look like? This is a, this is a, you know, even if let's say even okay, we bring Eric Fisher back, which ultimately they decided not to do. But even okay, we bring Eric Fisher back. We've got a left tackle who's in his thirties now. You know, at a at a at a you know uh, position that takes a lot of a lot of force and a lot of brunt. Um, you know, it's not unusual to have situations where you need guys playing out of position. Now, you don't want that. You know, you prefer guys playing their natural position. But I think, yeah, a lot of credit, like I said, always always to the players, but for Veach to look at it and go, okay, not only do we need to improve our offensive line, we need to also improve our, um, for lack of a better term, our escape hatch plan uh, that we, we can put into uh, – put into works if if guys need to change position we need not only better more talented offensive line we need we need more versatile offensive linemen yeah so that was good to see and I, I think you saw a lot of the fruits of the labor there I mentioned not having a sack but also I mean that was I don't know one of the best games of Daryl Williams career and, and part of that was he was running really well and, and trucking guys over and making good cuts but you have to have those lanes and uh, I think I think one of the only times I remember they got pressure on Mahomes that made a huge difference, where he didn't quite. Pringle was about to break into his uh, into his route, and he would have had Pringle wide open, but Mahomes didn't quite have enough time. He had to peel out of the pocket a little quicker. But that was a time where the Bengals were blitzing and bringing seven on five. Yeah. So really, the only time they were able to get to Mahomes successfully is when they were bringing seven on five. Yeah, but with the running back specifically, like I, I think. But Darrell Williams and Derek Gore, that's that really is everything you need at running back. If Clyde can't come back, which didn't practice today, and, and I'm assuming he'll be back for the playoffs, I don't think you're going to be worried about that. I don't think it's an issue. Obviously, you'd like to have him back, but I don't really view that as an, an issue either way. Um, we did hear from Steve Spagnuolo today, who spoke with the media about, you know, and, and this is twice now, or I guess three times, because Andy Reid mentioned this in the postgame. Anthony Hitchens kind of echoed this yesterday as well. Uh, about why did or what was like your game plan there when they got down toward the goal line like where you're going to let them score and both Andy Reid and Anthony Hitchens were like yeah we we're going to let them score after they got the first down which at that point you were out of that timeouts makes no difference no it didn't there's 45 seconds left the Bengals didn't want to score at that they, point exactly so you let them score when you do have those timeouts and even if you didn't have the two point conversion or a two point a two minute warning easy enough for me to say but you had a situation where if you just let them walk into the end zone, and when they clearly were trying to not walk into the end zone, if you just let them walk into the end zone, you had a, you, there was a situation, a very real possibility that the Chiefs could have been down a touchdown with over two minutes left, one or two timeouts, and oh, by the way, Patrick Mahomes. Yes. Like, I'll take that. Yes. You, so... They ended up not doing that, and, and it was just kind of a weird explanation. The explanation today from Steve Spagnola for why they decided to blitz on the third and 27 was that they didn't want to allow a completion. The Bengals were kind of hovering around the area where it would be a long field goal, and you know it was a tie game. If they kick a field goal, now all of a sudden you're behind late in the game. 
And they opted, or Spagnola opted, uh, under the idea of, hey, let's try to force an incompletion or get a sack, cause something that prevents them from getting a look at a field goal here instead of just playing for a, I, I think the exact thing he said is we viewed it as like a third a and third six. third and six, yeah. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I get the logic there. You don't want them to kick a field goal. I just don't under, like if you want to leave T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd, Boyd single coverage, like they still might beat you, but that's fine. Those are still good receivers. But it's not Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase at that point had over 200 yards in the game. He had beaten you one-on-one all day long. He had beaten you on jump balls a couple times prior to that. At least put one safety back in help on Jamar Chase's side to prevent that. I, I just don't understand that. And, like, I get the logic of what he was going for, but I think it was a poor plan to try to go through with that logic. I also think, you know, if this had come up – um you know, earlier in the game, and of course, if it come up early in the game, it may not have been as big a deal, but that happened to be the last drive in the game winning drive. But um, if you early on had been paying more attention to T. Higgins than Chase, I'm fine with that. Even though Chase was the higher draft pick, T. Higgins was actually having the better season. There were a lot of people who, I mean, Jamar Chase was, I think, bust is, 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 too, too strong a word, but Jamar Chase was approaching the moment where people were wondering, was he worth a fifth overall draft pick? So if you if you weren't paying a load of attention to him early on in the game, okay, but he should have gotten your attention by that point. And, yeah. you, and you made the point, and we were talking in, in, pre, in the, the pre-show meeting, um, you know, I, I brought up, you know, it, it still took a really good throw, even though it was single coverage, it still took a really good throw and a good good catch from Chase to um, uh, to complete that. And then you said, and, and you agreed, but then also pointed out, which is a good point, that he'd been making those catches all day. And if you double, if you bracket him or bring in a safety to help, at the very least, I think that makes Joe Burrow... Uh, have to take a couple more seconds to chuck that ball instead of just doing it automatically. If he has to think a little bit more, then there's a higher chance you get that sack there. Well, and, and okay, uh, maybe you come into the game and you have this idea like, okay, we can get away with this. But yeah, at some point in the game, you have to realize that. And, and why would you not at least have that backup in your mind? Because coming into the game, it's not like, like yes, this was by far Jamar Chase's best game. He had another 200-yard receiving game earlier this year at Baltimore, though. This isn't the first time for this. He had, coming into that game, he had 1,150 yards with 10 touchdowns. This isn't a new thing that he's this, like, elite receiver. That was already there. So the fact that you didn't have a backup for that, and I, I, I was actually shocked by it because I actually, earlier that last week, I was listening to an interview with Jonathan Vilma, who uh, I think he does color work for Fox now, or on the NFL broadcasts, and... Um, he was saying one year that Steve Spagnuolo was their defensive coordinator. They had this game plan that they were going to let, I forget the name of the corner on the Saints, they were going to let him um, basically go one-on-one with, I, I can't remember the name, it, it, it was some stud receiver. And that was the plan, that he was going to be able to take them away or do enough with it that they could just work the rest of the field. And after the first like three drives of the game, the guy had torched them for like six catches, a couple touchdowns, and Steve Spagnolo said, you know what? Screw that. We're making an in-game adjustment. We're going to change how we're doing it because this ain't working. We're not going to leave him out to dry all game. So I, I would have figured, knowing that you story. You would have learned that lesson before. That that would have been the case. Yeah. But it wasn't. That, and, and a lot of this comes back to Guy. And, and I saw somebody tweet, and I can't remember who, but they tweeted, well, 
at least you have to admire or, or respect Spags. He has a mentality. He has a philosophy, and he's sticking to it. No, you don't. The Like, you know who doesn't always stick to the same, excuse me, who doesn't always stick to the same game plan week in and week out? Yeah, Bill Belichick. You know who else is a guy who is, was has become one of the first and only to have the philosophy of just letting guys score? Bill Belichick. The greatest coach in the history of, of the sport of football. Why don't, I mean, I get, okay, I understand. you. They've earned the right to be stubborn in their ways because it, it has made them very successful men. But why, when the greatest coach ever is willing to rearrange things week to week and take a second look at all of his philosophies, why aren't you? Yeah. No, I don't I don't get it. I actually thought the secondary play I mean, the Sorensen messed up coverage. That was really bad. The not being able to attack Jamar tackle Jamar Chase on the first touchdown. That was bad. But I thought outside of that, the secondary actually played well. I think it was just a bad matchup for the Chiefs because you have three really good receivers on a team with a pinpoint accurate quarterback and you didn't adjust. And that to me is on coaching. So if you play him again in the playoffs, you better hope something changes with the game plan, but maybe good and news because Joe Burrow, Joe Mixon, they're not going to play this week. I was for just going to say, if you do play, they might them, fall to the four seed. Who yeah, knows? there's a de- well, and there's a decent chance. Yeah, you either play them. If you do play them, it'll be in the AFC Championship game if they fall to the four seed. But even if they wind up as the three, if you win against and whoever your first round opponent is, you're still getting a, a, a second round game at home. He's Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. We'll recap Rock Chalk Pickahawk next. Five o'clock hour. Thanks for joining us today on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson with Adam Dravetta here on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN and KLWN.com. As we talked about in the open, that was just one of the weirdest KU games I've ever seen. Just a complete roller coaster. Of a game. You go from looking really good early in that game. You get up 29 to 15, and You're it's like, this, wow. This could be like 30 for Ochai. Yeah. Kind of a night. Thinking, hey, we might not have to actually sweat out a, a game in Stillwater where, you know, Bill Self has struggled. He was 6 and 8 coming into that one in his time at KU playing in Stillwater. And um, even the wins, like, I'm trying to think the last time that. Okay, you didn't have to sweat one out at least in the final couple minutes. Of if the I game. remember the the one against um the one with Dodson and Udoka in twenty twenty, if I remember that right, they got off to a big start and and there were a couple moments where Oklahoma State got it like back within ten, but I think that was a game where it was just not anything. Like it was they got up like twenty five to five off the bat and then that was it. Yeah, they uh, won that one. Now well, let's see, sixty five to fifty. So that would that was probably the case. I don't know why I don't really remember that one much. It's just there's been so many. It was just that a weeknight game, and the it was yeah because we're so but we are used to to sweating going to Stillwater. We yeah, just are absolutely. And so it was like, oh, you're not gonna have to do that. And then Oklahoma State finishes the half on a 14-0 run, helped uh, along by KU. Yes, it was it was mainly KU honestly because if KU, you know, they missed their last 19 shots of the half. It was I've never seen anything like that in my life. Um. It felt like you were playing a video game and somebody turned the sliders down to zero so that it was physically impossible to make a shot and you you just wanted to just like turn the game off. If if KU's offense was at a normal clip and a, a nor- normal for this year and another team went on an 0 for 19 which wound up being an 0 for 20 stretch I think that I mean it would have been what a, a 
30 to nothing run for KU. <laughs> yeah. Well, by okay, I mean, I guess they did make a couple of free throws in that stretch. You but. texted me this. You were like, if if they would have shot even five of twenty in that stretch, um, they would have shot over fifty percent for the game. If they would have shot five of twenty in that stretch, they would have been up ten at halftime, right? Yeah. I mean, Instead maybe more because one could yeah. have been a three. Instead, it was tied. But I just kept looking, and every time Oklahoma State had the ball, I just kept thinking, thank God they can't make anything yeah. either, because they, I mean, it was a freaking miracle. It went from KU up fourteen to missing 19 straight shots to a tie game, <laughs> and that's it. Like, it it could have easily, like, Oklahoma State, in, in a lot of instances, if that happens against a lot of other opponents, Kansas is down 10 mm-hmm. by that point. Yeah, and th- and that's, you know, um, kind of Oklahoma State's calling card. Bad offense, good defense. We're going to see more teams like that in the Big 12, but you don't expect that to happen. By the way, does that, does that make you feel better that that happened now because if KU makes the Elite Eight, you got that out of the way? Uh, there's something to be said yeah. about that. Um, I yeah, I, I guess I I do think. Um, or does it make you feel worse that like in an elite eight game that exact may, thing could may happen? happen? Yeah, I, both thing. Yes, I guess both both are are very plausible. I just the one thing I'll say about that is I I didn't feel, and and you know we we've heard from Bill Self and and you know we'll hear from him later. I I don't know like. I didn't see personally any bad. You don't want McCormick taking a three, but there were two seconds left on the shot clock. That, that the McCormick three came from Oklahoma State punching it out of bounds. I thought the mid-range two, one was worse. Yes, but I guess it was a bad shot, but I'm just so used to him. Like, he's kind of good for one of those a game. Um, but, yes, it, it, but point being, maximum of, what, three shots out of that 0 for 20 stretch that you can look at and say those were bad shots. Yeah. The, the two McCormick ones. No, there were a lot sure of there open threes in yeah, there. They yeah, they just did not fall, and it was infuriating. I mean, how many, you know, uh, Dewan had a, had a shot go in early from the corner three, which has been his bread and butter in terms of scoring this year, and then he had another one from the corner three from the other side, and it just didn't fall. No. So they I, had some decent shots that just weren't falling. Yeah, I think he missed his first five, which he's been a, you know, he's not a high usage guy, but he's been efficient in what he's done. So it, it was just kind of weird. So you go from the up of the start to the down of how you finish the half. And then like, I, I don't, as we talked about in the open, I didn't feel like that was panic time because I was just like, there's no way this is repeatable. Like they're tied even through all that. I think yeah. they'll be fine. I but, felt really good just to be tied at yes. halftime. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm feeling all right. There was a there was a brief moment. I, I wouldn't say panic, like that's that's too harsh. But there was a brief moment of uh oh, when they came out in the second half, and I was kind of expecting KU to just come out of the second half and go on like a twelve to two run. And Oklahoma State got the lead. I think they got up three points. I want to say they hit like an yeah. I think one. that was the max. The, it was like thirty six thirty three. The the moment where I got worried was I think it was maybe a Christian Brown three that gave KU the lead back by one, mm-hmm. and then Oklahoma State came right back down and canned a three of their own to go up three. That was when I was like, because you, you kind of thought, okay, if KU can just get the lead here, that was at least my thought. If KU can get the lead, that's when the 12-2 to two run is going to happen and they'll just finish it off. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the fact that Oklahoma State took the lead right back, I, it was just it was so clear to me throughout the entire game, KU was a much better team. And the only time I'm ever worried in games like that, one, I'm almost never worried of a of a even in Bill Self's worst offensive teams, I'm not worried about missing 20 straight shots. But um, I also think unless the other team has just a sharpshooter who is known for hitting threes or 
maybe isn't, but for some reason that night is having like a seven for eight from three night, and nobody from Oklahoma State was doing that. So at no point where I was was I really like, uh oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that was the thing. It never felt like Oklahoma State was going to run to a point with their point total that was going to be too much to overcome. But And then you had the, the I mean, David McCormick and himself, that was a roller coaster of a game. I think there were obviously a lot more ups than downs in that game. But to start that game, it was like you had the one possession where um, he, he got the ball back on like an offensive rebound or, or a deflected pass or something, and he immediately just starts to like trying to back down a guy like from the high post. Immediately gets it stripped, yep. taken the other way. It leads to a bucket. Had trouble like uh, this has been I think one of the biggest um, knocks against Dave just catching balls, whether it's just grabbing the rebound and securing it, or just straight up like catching a pass. And there were more of that. And then he just flipped the switch. He just went from being, you know. Uh, I guess the goat to the goat, right? The old version of the goat to the new version the, of the goat. Yeah. Seventeen and fifteen. That was a roller coaster. And then the end of the game. That was a roller coaster. With that it's like so KU's up seventy two fifty seven with three four minutes left. It's like all right, Remy Martin hit the big nine, shot. I thought it was the dagger. And then it's seconds. nine, and they're throwing the ball away. And you're like, well, here we go. We're back into this thing. And then uh, you're just every possession, even the ones that didn't lead to turnovers, felt like. You were Kevin from the office where he's walking in with, the with a thing of chili and he just <laughs> dumps it everywhere. That's actually a perfect comparison. <laughs> um, that Yeah, that's what we're going to – Every if this happens at all the rest of the year, we're just going to tweet out a gif <laughs> of that. Um, but, I, yeah, and it was so unusual, and I don't know if it was – I think Self said um, in his Monday media availability where he said, I think the only practice they got in after Saturday was a quick 30 minutes on Sunday – or something like that. I just was stunned, and maybe this is another. I don't know if this is a reason to be worried and thinking that St. John's was a fluke, or we do not be worried and think that last night against the press was a fluke. But I just I wonder, you know, how is it going to be if, if KU has four or five days to prepare because they torched St. Joe or St. John's press. Yeah, they, they were, they they were looked fine like on they'd turnovers never, before yeah, that. And they looked like they'd never seen one before And it, once those last two minutes or so came. No, and it was it was funny because before they, they did that, they showed a, a graphic, and it was literally right before they started pressing. And it was like Oklahoma State averages forcing 19 turnovers a game. And, you know, I, I mentioned before the show they were top 10 in turnover rate defensively, top 10 in steal rate defensively. And they showed all these numbers, and, and they were, like, way below their averages. KU was doing a great job. And then all that happened, which, by the way, though, the one – turnover that led back to the Dwan Harris steal. And I know Bill Self said this in the post game, like that might be the best play we've had this year. That might be the best play in college basketball this year. Awesome. That was unbelievable. Newell tweeted out a great picture. A great yeah. picture. And and I um I don't know the name. He credited in his tweet he credited the the photographer, somebody with the Tulsa World. And that was an awesome photo. Um one that I think if, if, as Dwan Harris is um career continues at KU is going to be one that he's going to have to put a signature on a lot because it's it's a really cool picture um and that play was was it was it the picture makes it look even better watch at least for me watching it on TV it was like oh wow that's a great hustle play but then you actually see it yeah, from once the angle of the baseline angle. you're like whoa yeah well because I thought on TV you can't really see it almost looked like to me that Oklahoma State just kind of lost it and then you see on that other angle it, that was, that was awesome. incredible um, but now for KU, this is really three out of their last four games that at different points in time, they've kind of stumbled through. And Stephen F. Austin, that game was down to the wire at the end. And George Mason, the second half is 
ugly second half. Oklahoma State, you have that ugly first half. So I, I, I don't know. Is is that just a – they're just kind of stuck in the mud? Is it just a, a weird run of play? Is it um, weird things that are happening that we can easily excuse? Is it a cause to be concerned moving forward? Or is it more of a, you know – Wow, all this weird stuff is happening, and they're still winning these games by, you know, basically double digits. I this may seem like a cop out, but I think they're just a college basketball mm-hmm. team, and weird things happen. That's probably and, the and best the, I, I would probably be more like I was probably more annoyed with Stephen F. Austin, and maybe I feel this way because they actually made a real game of it, and it was um, we had to, you know, fans had to sweat it out to, uh, really up till the end when Remy Martin canned the three. Um, but and last night that wasn't the case, but I I just I didn't see really the the I was most I was probably more annoyed with how Kansas handled the press down the stretch with a 15 point lead than I was with any of those shots during the 0 for 20 run because I, I at no point did I say or did I see a shot again with those three exceptions which one of which happened at the end of a shot clock and you just have to heave it, um, but with those exceptions. I didn't ever see a shot during that 0 for 20 stretch where I was like, what are you doing? Don't mm-hmm. take that. Um, and so I, you know, I was probably more annoyed with, I'm, I'm, I'm I was less annoyed with those cause they were at least getting shots up. It seemed like when they were stumbling, whether even as far back as UTEP in the, in the T-Mobile center or Stephen F. Austin, it seemed like when they were struggling there, it was either they were putting up bad shots or they weren't getting shots up at all. And that's more annoying to me. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I think, uh, like I said with the George Mason game, you had a terrible half of basketball, you were missing open shots, and yet you still were able to put up 76 points or whatever. You could view that as a glass half full. You could do the same with this. You could say, despite the fact that this was such a, a roller coaster game, despite the fact that um, you missed 19 straight shots, that you basically, if you think about it, you only played offense for three-fourths of the game because you didn't score for a nine-minute and change stretch. So basically, by only playing three-fourths of the game offensively, by having a frantic end to the game with turnovers, you still scored 74 points, and that yeah. is actually very impressive against a team that coming into that game had a top-20 defense. Yeah, I mean, I and... You know, and and a lot of the ways in which KU has has been um, made to look, uh, you know, made to struggle, I guess this year, uh, it it didn't come in the ways we expected. Which again, does that mean there's there's a whole new thing, a set of worries we have, or does it just mean that last night just kind of was a Tuesday night in in January and. That was that. Yeah. So we have more takeaways uh, throughout the week that we'll get to. We mentioned some in the open as well. You can always check back on that in the uh, Best of Our 60 podcast. This was a, instead of 0 for 20, this was a 5 for 20 game away from being an 83 to 63. Exactly. And then I don't even know what the takeaways are. It's just, oh, what a perfect game and and what a start to Big 12 play. Um, So, yeah. Uh, I guess we'll learn more on the game on Saturday against Texas Tech, maybe. All right, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, klwn.com. Depend on it.